be in Hosea chapter 11 this evening. Um, this evening we will now be moving into a different part. As I've shared with you, as we've been going through the book of Hosea, my Bible breaks up certain portions into sections and stuff, and so we are now moving into um, or from the indictment part of the book of Hosea, and we are, we'll start seeing God's unceasing love for Israel and the restoration of Israel. The book of Hosea is all about God's redeeming love. And it's interesting because it's been pretty harsh uh, up until now. And it's still going to sound kind of harsh in some ways, if you will, as we get into it. As I shared with you last week, our God is a God of love. And man, we all want to hear that, right? Oh, he is such a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. And that's what we don't want to hear. Nor do we want to be a part of that judgment. But as I was sharing with you last week, that even as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, Peter wrote, and I, I didn't write it this time here, but the judgment begins in the house of God. And, and, and if, if God does, deals with us, what's going to happen to those who are not his, you know? And I'm paraphrasing there, but, but again, when we continue on here in chapter 11, we, we will see God's, again, unceasing love for, for Israel and the restoration of Israel. But that's not to say that we will still not, still not see um, a negative narrative, even uh, as we go through this, because Israel, because of what they had done and what they continued to do, even to the very moment that this letter is being written, there's certain things that Israel is still doing, and yet through it, we're going to see God's unceasing love through it. And so here we are in verse 11. We're we'll read the first seven verses, and then uh, a little later, we'll read the rest of the chapter. But it says this in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they came, as they came, no, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burnt offering or burnt incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by their arms, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from the neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt. But the Assyrians shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash the cities, devour its, his districts, and consume them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. As we go back here and begin this, this portion in verse 1 and 2 especially, once again we see how the Lord is kind of recalling Israel's early history in contrast to the, to the past with the present, to contrast that. It's interesting because in the last few chapters, we've seen a glimmer of that, that even though he was indicting them, even though he, he was bringing these charges against Israel, there was a couple of times in, in chapter 9, verse 10, and even in, in 10, 1, where, where you see this glimmer of God remembering Israel back in the day. The Lord is like reminiscing of the time when Israel was was a child when Israel was young when they were not mature enough to do their own thing do you remember your kids if you're a parent 
when your kids were young and they didn't know any different that they could say no to you? Well, they would always say no. But you, you know when they got a little older and they got a little bit more defiant and you're just like, dang, I wish they were kids again. You know, so I can smack them. But you're looking up at them, right? It's almost like God is reminiscing of the time that Israel was a child when they were young. And as I shared with you last week, from the time of Hosea's writing, it had been over 600 years, it was about 600 years earlier, when he had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And it's almost as if the Lord remembered even further back when they first came to Egypt. And if you remember the story, you know, it, it was like 400 years that they were in Egypt. And it's almost like before they could ever walk. He, he kind of goes all the way back then. So, so, so now we're, we're, we're thinking, man, almost about a thousand years ago when Israel first had to come to Egypt. And if you remember the story, God sent Joseph ahead to save his people. Now, I know the story. It's like, no, no, his brothers, man, they were the ones that did all this evil and stuff. And whatever they meant for evil, God had turned it to good because God was preparing the nation of Israel or the people of Israel for what he had for them. And so he basically sent Joseph ahead of them. And because of Joseph, the people of Israel were kept alive during the severe famine that had hit them, and they were able to multiply in ensuing years. And it's interesting because when you read the story back in the day, they just became bigger and bigger and bigger. Granted, they started with like 70, 75 people. They grew, grew to about 2 million. That's in 400 years. So they had, they had grown up, basically, or they had grown somewhat in that place. Oh, they started from humble beginnings, and yet God formed a nation. Because when they got there, they were a people. And when he brought them out and met with them in Mount Sinai, they became a nation. And they, they had this, this, this thing about them that God was using them and, and molding them and shaping them and doing all these things. And when he led them out of Egypt, when Moses led them out of Egypt, they came out with some kind of power because they were, they were a big people now. And so at the beginning, the Lord's relationship with Israel was that of a father and a son. And it says this in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. When that whole scenario was, was, was happening and Moses was going to Pharaoh, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And so, so in verse 1, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This part of the verse is not only looking back, and when he called the nation of Israel out of Jerusalem, but there's an interesting twist to just this little portion of chapter of verse 1. Because it is also a prophetic verse that looked ahead to his son, Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says something about calling him out of Egypt. And I want to read to you because it is a prophetic, messianic kind of portion of Scripture right here in, in Hosea that, that you could skim over really quick. But I have a little footnote that takes me somewhere else and it's like, oh my goodness. It took me over to Matthew chapter 2 where it says in, in chapter 2 of Matthew 13 to 15, 
Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod uh, uh, will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. What an interesting little twist, even as we're studying here in Hosea, that, that it not only looked back, but it, almost, it also looked forward. The, the, the Messiah was sent to and returned from Egypt so that this prophet, Hosea, a minor prophet, would, would, his words would come and ring true, that out of Egypt I have called my son, and that was to fulfill prophecy which Hosea gave now it doesn't seem like this great amazing prophecy that that people look to all the time in the sense of a prediction because Hosea was writing of God's calling Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus but Matthew when Matthew is writing his gospel and going back and talking about how Jesus was taken into Egypt that God would call his son Jesus out of Egypt and in that sense the Messiah would be identifying itself himself with the Messiah or with the nation and so in verse in verse 2 it says as they called them, they went from them. They sacrificed the bales to the bales and burnt offering to, uh, to carven images. When God later called them to a covenant obedience, if you will, through his prophets, <clears throat> the people, the nation of Israel, the very ones that God loved, the very ones that God nourished and took care of. They rejected Him. And they turned instead to the false gods, these Baals. And it's sad because as I'm looking at this, we, we, we see how Hosea paints this, this picture of, of God as the God of the Exodus as this tender father who is leading and guiding and, and freeing his son from bondage and taking care of him, going before him and coming up behind him, protecting him every step of the way as he brings him out, as he had you know, argued with, with Pharaoh and they finally let him out and, and, and then they face all these, these obstacles along the way and God just shows up time and time again. And we have this beautiful picture of how God just tenderly took care of this massive people who, who, who would become his nation. And the emphasis here that we're looking at here is not on Israel as the unfaithful wife, as we've seen earlier, but what we see here is Israel as the ungrateful son. After all God had done for his son, his son refused to turn to him. He refused to, to truly receive that love. And, and, and he refused to obey his will. And I love the fact that even though we see this, and, and, and as, as he's pinning this right now, they are still in sin. They are still in that place. And yet, as he's writing this, God never stopped loving Israel, ever. Even though there was judgment coming, we're going to read a little later, that even in that judgment, God shows mercy. Now, Hosea chapter 11, verse 2, in the New Living Translation, puts it like this, verse 2. But the more I called him, the further he moved from me. 
offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. Doesn't that just sound like that little spoiled brat of ours, maybe, when they were young? Come here. And they just kind of looked, and they keep on walking away. Come here. I'm calling you. And they just kind of are disobedient. And you're going, why would you be so disobedient? Don't you know how much I truly love you? I mean, at that moment, you're probably a little upset. <laughs> but that child doesn't realize how much you truly love them. And as disobedient as they're getting, and the more you call them, the, the further you're going until they start running. And now they're really in trouble. Right? But they don't realize that, that the parents love them so much. And yet we get this, this picture of this tender father calling his people whom he loves, his son. And the more he called them, the further they went. And he says this in verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. We, we continue to see this tenderness of a father. And the excitement of a father who teaches his young child to walk. Again, most of us who are parents, we've gone through that time. I mean, some of us are doing it with our grandkids, right? To where you want to be the one that teaches them to walk. Now, their parents might not want that to happen yet, but there's something about being mobile like that, that, man, there's this independence and, and, and there's this beauty of, of, of just seeing this picture of a dad and even a mom, you know, her from behind, dad from, a, from in front, and you're just enveloping this child to teach them to do something that is necessary as they mature. Because it's necessary that they end up walking. And God says, I taught them to walk. I remembered them when they were born. I remembered them when they were, when they were growing, when they were maturing. And I'm teaching them to walk. And you see this wonderful picture of a dad. just, And, and you could see the dad beaming. Because you're teaching them something that is going to be necessary for life. And they did not know, as he's drawing them and, and taking them, they, they did not know that I healed them. Just like when, a, when, when, when the child, as they're learning to walk, you know, that they stumble and fall, and right away it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you just want to be there to make sure that they didn't get hurt, that, that you tenderly love them, that if there's anything that happened, man, you're going to touch it, you're going to heal it, you're going to kiss it, you're going to do whatever it is to encourage them to, to not give up. And that's what God did to his people. He taught them. He healed them. He led them. He was careful to lead them. As you and I would lead our children, he was careful to do that with them. He didn't treat them like animals, even though we get a little picture here a little later in verse 4. Of, of, of him kind of taking this yoke off of them. But, but this picture that we see is a loving dad. I drew them. I drew them with the gentle cords. God bound himself, if you will. Drew himself to his people with, bond, with bands or cords of love. He, he didn't put bits in, 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 in a bridle in, in their mouth and treated them like, like a, a stubborn animal. Something that had to be broken. No, he, he, he tenderly, kind of almost like a, like a leash, if you will, to, to help them to stand. 
And then he, he, he talked about taking this yoke, this annoying and irritating yoke off of them. God, God wasn't using harsh manipulation or corrosion. Corro corro what's that word? Corrosion. Uh, huh? Help me out, Pete. Corrosion. Yeah, corrosion. Yeah. Dude, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I'll just stick to manipulating. And now even that one, I would jack that one up, right? He, he, he could have. He could have whipped them into shape, but he gently led them and guided them. And, and I think often we have the misconception that that's who our God is, that he whips us into shape. And, and, and sometimes we have that because of our natural fathers or parents who, who maybe weren't the best example and we think that's who God is. And oftentimes you end up reading those scriptures as if God's always mad at you. And he's always going to whip you into shape. And, and, and that's the mindset that we sometimes get. And yet here, even in the book of Hosea, that we've been seeing so much of the judgment coming, and it was necessary judgment that was supposed to come, yet through it all, instead of just striking them dead right from the get-go, he was long-suffering, as I've shared with you, that the, we're talking about the northern kingdom, that Ephraim is a northern kingdom for 200 in 10 years, 19 kings, none of them were good, and he still was giving them time to repent. And after Jeroboam II, he still gave them like 35 years that, that time, you know, you pass the line, there's judgment coming, but if you individually repent, I will bring you to myself. Many of those people who knew that they were going to be taken captive, they, were, they ended up going south because they, were, they wanted to worship God. But he never whipped them into shape. He, he never used brute force or, or judgment in that with that matter. He stooped down, and, and again, you see the gentleness, even as you would stoop down to feed an animal. He took the bonds off so they can breathe, so they can have freedom, the yoke. And in verse 5, he says, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. Because they refuse to repent. In, in these verses, verses 5, 6, and 7, but we've been seeing it, we will continue to see it, but in these verses we, we see God demonstrating his, lung, his love by his long suffering towards his people. Because on more than one occasion, God could definitely have just wiped them out because of their disobedience. He could have started over again. And if you remember a time when he brought them out of Egypt, and do you remember if, 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 if you've ever read through Exodus, there's always this like God and Moses talking. And, and, and God saying, well, your people, Moses, like, oh, no, they're your people. <laughs> or, or Moses going, your people, like, oh, no, you're the one that's leading them, Moses. It's your people. It's like, no, but you're the one that called us. And there was always this argument. And there's one moment where, where God says to Moses in Exodus 32.10, Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may not may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. In other words, I'll, I'll get rid of all of them, Moses, and I will start over with you. Dude, if Moses was selfish, if Moses was this prideful man, it's like, let's do it. Burn them all. I'm tired of them too. But he doesn't do that. He tells God, you can't. You can't do that. These are your people because Egypt will say, oh, God couldn't handle it. Oh, I'm sure God would just go, I knew you'd do that, Moses. I knew you would do that. But time and time again, he could have. He could have snuffed them out. 
Just like he could snuff us out, right? I don't know if you've ever been in that place. It's like, Lord, just get rid of me. You're, you're even going, I'm tired of myself. You could take me out right now. Just put me in, cor- in the corner of heaven. You don't even have to think about me anymore. But God doesn't strike us dead right in the middle of, of what we're doing. In the middle of sin sometimes that you're going, man, oh man. You have every right to God. When the journey even became difficult and the Jews wanted to go back to Egypt and they complained. Instead, they should have been praying and thanking God for the mercies of getting them out, but they didn't. And so we've already seen throughout the book of of Hosea, some references of Egypt in this book, and yet they refer to the new bondage of the Syrians. Israel refused to repent, and so the nation had to be taken into captivity. And so he says all these things, that they shall not return, but but Assyria shall be their king, and he says this because they refuse to repent. And, and, and it's almost like, and don't get me wrong here, but it's almost like the sin wasn't the issue anymore. It wasn't the sin. It wasn't their original sin of them going unto other gods and worshiping other gods. The, what, what was going on now was the stubbornness of their refusal to repent after their sin. Be, be, because it wasn't so much the sin anymore. Oh, God still looked at it and said it's wrong. But the fact that they weren't repenting from it, the stubbornness of it. God would make sure that destruction and exile would have to happen. He says, but my people, my people in verse 7, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. Backsliding means that at one time, Israel had this close intimacy with God. And and the more they walked with God, you would think that they would have gotten closer to God. And there was times that they did, but the more they walked with God, it's almost like they got further away from Him as it told us in verse 2. Their profession... Of, of, of acknowledging God was, was somewhat empty because it wasn't really in their hearts anymore. And they, when they called on the Most High, it was out of formality, but they really didn't meet it. They, they didn't exalt Him. The term backsliding is what happens when someone begins to drift away. And, it, and, and this drifting away begins and, and it starts and it's gradual. And part of that is because of the stubbornness of refusing to repent for our sin. Oh, we might, we might play the part. We might say, Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. And then we, but, but we never really desire to leave that sin. And now it's not so much that sin, but it's the refusal of that sin. Because backsliding, it's something that happens gradually. This drifting, I don't know if you've ever been to the beach, and, and you're in front of this, this, this lifeguard station, and because you're out playing and playing, and, and, and the way the waves are going and stuff, pretty soon you're going, how did we get so far over? Because the, the, the tide keeps on pulling you away and away, and it's almost like a gradual thing that, that because you're busy, you don't notice it. And sometimes in our backsliding, it, it happens gradually. It's not like you just slip on some a banana peel and you fall back and you backslid. It's like, that's not the case. It doesn't happen like from here to tomorrow. If it looks like it's from here to tomorrow, it started way over here. And that's what they're, they were bent on that. They were kind of like, Man, they just couldn't get away from that. They didn't want to get away from that. 
They were bent on backsliding. These guys had made plans, but they, they didn't counsel God in their plans. And so, so they would fall to their invaders, the Assyrians. And the only time they called on the Lord was when they were in trouble. Interestingly enough, God would help them. And, and I know that sometimes we're going, God, why do you keep on doing that? Because we read that throughout the Old Testament that, that Israel continues to do these things and it's the cycle. And every time they call upon the name of the Lord, it's like he forgives them and we go, why? And I know sometimes I get frustrated with myself of going, Lord, why? Why do you continue to forgive me for my stupidity? Why do you continue, Lord God, to love me when I'm not lovable? And yeah, I'm so grateful that he is. But you see, with, with Ephraim, the northern kingdom here, even though they, they would call on him and he would seem to come through for them. And again, we see the mercies of God. They had already crossed this line and now judgment was for sure. It was irreversible. They would be taken captive not long after this chapter. So the end had to come. And so verse, 11, uh, verse 8 to the end of the chapter. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboiim? My heart turns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his son shall come trembling from the west, they shall come trembling like the bird, like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Verse 12, Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with me, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Verse 8 and verse 9 are amazing verses. Because we've seen throughout the book of Hosea, Hosea's messages of judgment Oftentimes, and we've got little glimmers of, of this redemptive love that we've been talking about because that's the theme of this book. But, but oftentimes in the messages of, of judgment, there was always right at the end, like this glimmer of hope, the shift to salvation and to redemption. To remind us that God's judgment is not forever with the nation of Israel. Until the very end, God's judgment for Israel was never permanent. And, and, and if he would destroy all of them, there was always a remnant because of his mercy, because of his covenants that he had made with them. And it almost sounds like in these verses that now there's a decision that has been made to withhold the judgment that, that we've been seeing throughout this book. But understand that what we hear is in response to Israel's suffering and exile. That's going to happen. And, and what he is saying here, because the judgment will be doled out, that he will have mercy on them and that he will redeem them. The Lord, again, will not totally abandon Israel. 
the effects of his wrath will be tempered by his compassion. And he will ultimately call his people back from exile. Oh, judgment's coming. It's going to be ugly. People are going to die. People are going to leave their homeland. Most of them will never see their homeland ever again. And yet there will be a remnant that will survive. And, and when we read verse 8, it's almost one of those, 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 those Bible verses that you see this expression of, of, of emotion from God. This, this divine compassion the compassionate heart of God when, when, when he says, how will I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Edom, Edmon, Emma, and set you like Zeboim? You see, according to the Jewish law, a rebellious son was supposed to be turned over to the elders of the city and stoned to death for their disobedience according to Deuteronomy 21:18-21. And yet we see here how God how could God do this to his beloved son Israel? Well, he's saying, how can I do this? How can I give you up? Oh, he's going to give them up. But they will not be lost forever. Judgment is coming. And it's interesting because centuries later, his innocent, only begotten son will be given up for the whole world. <laughs> he would pay the price for all the sins of the world. And as God reflected on the severe judgment Yet his wrath upon Israel, it, 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 would not, it would not be full force. He will hold back. You, you never want to be on the receiving end of his wrath. When, when we see the book of Revelation and the wrath that is being poured out, and, and it's, it's being pulled out, pulled, poured out, you know, full force. Israel doesn't see that. Not, not in this situation. And so it's almost like he, he holds back from the judgment, even though it will be severe, to say the least. And so as he's contemplating this, he, he, he kind of bursts out in these rhetorical questions indicating that he will not completely desert his people. These two cities that are mentioned here, Adma and Zeboim, these were cities that were annihilated completely along with Sodom and Gomorrah. In that region, these two cities were part of that region. And, and, and it talks about a total destruction. And he says, that will not happen to you. He destroyed these cities because of their sin. And those people who lived at that time in that place did not have the same privilege as the children of Israel, as the promised ones, to learn about the God of Israel. And yet, what right did Israel have to expect God to spare them? Especially when they refused to sin, or refused to repent from their sin. What motivated God to spare Israel from total destruction? Well, it wasn't only his, his deep compassion for them, but it was also his faithfulness because of the covenants that he had made. Why? Because he says, I am God and I am not man. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will, and will he not do it? 
He has spoken, and will he not make it good? You see, God, he remembers the covenant that he had made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And, and that covenant that he made with Abraham was an unconditional covenant. And it, and, and it will not change. And, and so because of that, the nation of Israel will be preserved to the very end. But the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in Mount Sinai was a conditional covenant. That if the people failed to meet the conditions, then God was obligated to withdraw his blessings. And we've seen that time and time again in Deuteronomy 28. Israel's possession of the land and its blessing was based on the, the, the covenant with Abraham. But their enjoyment of the land and the blessings were based on the covenant he made with Moses. Those were conditional. God was faithful to both commands. He preserved the nation, but he also disciplined the nation for their sin. And God is not afraid of discipline because that's part of his, his covenant with them. The long-suffering, the forgiveness, the compassion that God had towards his people, it, it seems to be unbelievable. How will you do that? Why do you continue to do that? Because he is not man, but God. His love and his forgiveness are of a different type, of a different order that you and I cannot really understand. Oh, we read it. We, we sometimes understand it. But it's different because He is God and we are not. We are mere men. As men, we can forgive and we can have compassion but we cannot understand how God forgives and has compassion. Oh, we want it, and we want to be like that. But we can never understand that order, the way He does it. You see, there's a list that I found as I was reading one of the commentaries, and so I just had to steal it. And I wanted to share it with you because it spoke so much to me because as much as we want to be like God and we should strive to be like Him, there are things that happen that as men, it is so hard to fulfill that. But in Christ we can, if you can understand that. If you have the Spirit of God, it is doable. But I found this list and again, as I look at this, I'm going, because he is God and I am not. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that, that again, you, in you we can do these things. But here's that list. It says, man cannot hold back his anger very long. Man cannot bear with others when he is tired, stressed, or annoyed. Man will not reconcile if a person has offended him in the person uh, and is a person of bad character. Man is often only willing to be reconciled if the offending party craves forgiveness and makes the first move. Man is often only willing to be reconciled if the offending party will never again do the wrong. Man, when he does reconcile, does not lift the former offender to places of high status or partnership. Man, when he is wrong, does not bear all the penalty of the wrong done. Man, when he attempts reconciliation, will not continue if he is rejected. Man will not restore the offender without a period of probation. 
Man will not love, adopt, honor, or adapt, honor, and associate with one who has wronged him. Man will not trust someone who has formally wronged them. I don't know about you, but when I read this list, I'm going, oh my gosh, that is who we are. As much as we don't want to be that, oftentimes we are that because of the pain and the hurt that comes from being wronged, right? You see, without God doing the work in man, these things are impossible. We can never be like him and we can never forgive like he forgives. You see, again, we understand what forgiveness looks like because we love when God forgives us. And yet when he tells us, now forgive others as I have forgiven you, and go, got it. And yet we can go through this list and it's like you're guilty of every stinking one of them. We are. Because it's like, I forgive, but there's always that but. And it's really, really hard. And unless we truly allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us constantly, are we able to get some of these things right? But praise the Lord that He is God and we are not. (laughs) And because He is God, He is able to forgive in a way that you and I, as much as we want to, and we learn, and, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't, but most of the time we want to get it right. But He is God, and He is able to forgive. That's why when we read about Israel, and the many times that they mess up, that's why He is still able to do what He does, because He is God, and He is not man. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. That in that story, if you remember, again, you see the gentleness of this father. And this father who had two sons, I'm sure he cared for them. He did everything he could for them. He provided for them. I'm sure when they were babies, man, he loved them and he took care of them. He taught them how to walk. He taught them how to do all these things. And yet at one point, one of the sons says, I wish you were dead. I'm paraphrasing. I wish you were dead so I can have my inheritance and I can go do whatever I want to go do. Because that's basically what he told them when he said, I want your inheritance. I want my portion. We're saying, I wish you were dead right now. And God, or or not God, but the Father gives it to him. And he allows him to walk away. And it broke my heart because it's like, you taught him how to walk and he walked away from you. And God teaches us how to walk and we sometimes walk away from him. He's the one that taught us how to walk. And I look at this story and and you see that this prodigal son is out there and he's living the way he wants to. And yet the, the, the just of the story is that the father is always looking for his son and he never stopped being his son even when he was out living a prodigal life. And what a picture of who God is that he teaches us all these things and then we walk away And he lets us walk away and he lets us go do what we want to go do and yet he's always waiting. And when the son comes to his right mind, he's saying, man, I'm a fool. And I come back and he's going, man, I have this this thing. Dad, I'm not worthy. Just let me be a a servant like the rest of your servants. And the dad never even lets him give us his spiel. That's who our God is. It's almost like he can't wait to bless you when you walk back to him. And this was Israel here. When he says, I will not execute my fierceness, in, uh, the fierceness of my anger, I will not destroy you because I am God and not man. He's that good to us. These last few verses just kind of looks ahead talking about how, how they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion then he shall roar when, when he roars. He, he, the sun will come back trembling from the west and he will receive them. God speaks of this ultimate restoration of Israel here in these verses. An expression of his mercy towards Ephraim. 
God makes all of these promises when he says, Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, those lies and those deceits, God promises to, to, to reinstate Israel. Oh, Judah was in a better place, the southern kingdom, than Israel was. But God still makes his promises to them. And he acknowledges, even they're in their present state, that he still loved them in the midst of their sin. Guys, God is so good to us. We look at these things about Israel and they are written for our example. That he loves us with an everlasting love. He is long-suffering and praise the Lord for that. You and I want to be. And there's times that we get it right. But God is always long-suffering. He is always kind. He is always tender. Oh, he's not afraid of judgment, but he is always kind and tender. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, it just blows my mind, Lord, as we, as we look at this portion of Hosea and we begin to see, Lord God, this redeeming love. Father, you could have unleashed could have unleashed your wrath on your people and yet you held back Lord thank you thank you for your temperance Lord thank you for being long suffering thank you for being patient with us Lord Lord you've given us an example through your word as you loved Israel Lord we thank you because, Lord, as we see the church and the relationship that Jesus and the church have, Lord, it's this amazing love that Jesus loves, unconditional. And even as a church, Lord, we're stubborn. And yet all you ask from us is to submit to you, to fall in, in place and, and, and be, be in rank. And you love us still, Lord. We thank you for that. I pray for my brothers and sisters here right now. I don't know what they're going through right now, Lord. But you do. And I don't know if they're being disciplined right now, Lord. I don't know if they just need to feel loved by you. Speak to them right now, I pray. Do a work right now. Remind them, Lord God, that there's always room for repentance. And repentance is not a bad word. It's a beautiful word. Thank you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing this last song. I love you guys.